Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. It is spring break at Wisconsin Lutheran College, and Wade and I are dutifully working in the office, even though we could be on the beaches of Florida. If you hear a fire alarm come on during this time, it's not because we're smoking pipes or something like that. Um, During this week, they're testing fire alarms, and it's not just once. It's been like multiple times yesterday and multiple times today. I don't know why they have to do that, but I'm glad they're doing it for the safety of everybody. And if it does, just in case it does come on, we will do our best to pause right away and just ride it out. So we will do our best to edit it later. But if you're listening and for some reason you notice there's kind of like a jump in the in the session as you're listening later, that just means fire alarm came on and we did our best to uh, edit around it. And if you uh, hear any uh, the sound of like a little girl screaming and slamming doors, that's Wade. All right. We are in a third disputation um, that we've been discussing. We had uh, three basically sets of theses that we've been discussing. We did the 95 theses, then we did uh, the disputation against scholastic theology, and now we're going to get to the Heidelberg disputation, um, probably more known uh, colloquially as the theology of the cross. That's where Luther really expands his theology of the cross. And so we, we had mentioned that each of those were different. The 95 theses was uh, something that was kind of meant to be public, like let's let's talk about this, posted on the castle church door. Uh, the disputation against scholastic uh, theology, however, was written for um, a student, uh, for a student. It was an academic within the college, uh, this kind of process where uh, maybe a professor would write some theses and then the students would debate them. Maybe a specific person would be the, the lead and debate this. And then this third um, third set of theses is really for a completely different audience, is for the Augustinians. So remember, Luther was an Augustinian friar. He's a part of this group, and this group's got a convention, right? And it's in Heidelberg, and part of this is going to be, he is going to present some theses, not in the classic way of in a classroom where we're going to debate these things, but it's a little bit more like, hey, this is where I'm at. This is this is what I have been thinking about. Already Luther is under, let's say, a little cloud of suspicion. He's definitely made some waves by this time. We're talking about um, the end of April in 1518. So not too far away from um, uh, October 31st, 1517, when the 95 Theses are posted. So about six months later, Uh, He's definitely known. He's definitely, people are curious about what he has said, and probably people are a little upset as well, or at least there is an eyebrow or two raised for this. And so this is the third of those early um, uh, theses, disputations, set of theses or disputations, but it's going to be the first of what uh, Wade and I are going to consider three um, forums um, for uh, we should say three places where he is going to publicly either state what he believes or is he going to be kind of called out into the carpet or he is going to be called to debate. So April 26, 1518, Heidelberg, before his Augustinian brethren. Later that year, in mid-October, there's going to be an imperial diet at Augsburg. On the periphery of that, almost kind of clandestinely, at least some of it, Luther is going to be called to meet um, Cardinal Cayetan. And then the third 
in 1519, uh, end of June and the beginning part of July, he is going to debate Johannes Eck in Leipzig. And so Heidelberg is uh, really kind of a transition between these three early disputations and then these three places that are a little bit more public, these scenes where Luther is going to have to promote, have to put out in public, and even be called out into the carpet on some of his theology. And so with that, um, I'm going to kick it to Wade, and he can kind of give us maybe an overview um, of the Heidelberg Disputation. And well, Wade, you can just take it wherever you want from here. Sure. So I just to reiterate, I think, Mike, you, you've pointed out well, um, these things it may seem like we've jumped around a little bit because we cheated a little chronologically going um, to uh, uh, the 95 Theses before these uh, disputation against scholastic theology. But there really is a method to the madness. So we've had the three disputations or theses, 95, and then we purposefully went second out of chronological order, at least I think we were out of chronological order, if I remember Mike correct, um, with the disputation against scholastic theology. And now we get to the Heidelberg Disputation. And the reason for that is that the Heidelberg Disputation is going to build on a lot of the key themes in the disputation against scholastic theology. Um, So original sin, uh, the bound will, the relationship of philosophy and theology, these will be um, things that he's unpacking further. So to to better connect those two, we wanted to go that way. And then we are um, sliding into kind of this phase, about a year of hearings or forums, fora, in which he's going to be called to uh, defend or present his teaching. Two of them very public, and then one of them private before Cayetan. Um, but all three, in many ways, will return to similar themes, although they'll be different as well. <coughs> the Leipzig debate will be famous for um, Luther insisting that popes and councils can err. But if we're thinking of the Heidelberg Disputation, this is probably, for Luther, his most home turf um, of the, uh, the, the three hearings he's going to have. Um, It's not home turf in that he's traveling to Heidelberg. And keep in mind, besides the journey to Rome, Luther did not make a lot of trips outside of Saxony. Um, So this will be one of the the further or farther trips that he makes in his life. But it is home turf because he's with his Augustinian order. That doesn't mean everyone there is going to agree with him. Um, It doesn't mean everyone is even fully cognizant of like this reform movement that's starting to bubble up. And keep in mind, there still is no capital R Reformation in anyone's mind at this point. Um, that's an appellation that will be added later. Um, but there is a cognizance and awareness that something is happening in Wittenberg. Something is going on. Uh, but it is home turf in that it is um, his monastic order. And amongst the monastic orders uh, at this time, there was a sense of your order was an identity, and there were rivalries between the order. And so it makes sense that Staupitz, um, who would have been overseeing all this, would have wanted Luther to get a hearing within his own order. Um, and it makes sense also then, uh, the Augustinian order d- doesn't mean they necessarily sat around and read Augustine all the time, and it doesn't mean that they were always all that Augustinian in their theology. Um, but Augustine was important, and Luther's going to hit on very Augustinian themes. Once again, original sin, um, think of the fight with Pelagianism, <coughs> um, free will or the bound will. Um, these will be important themes that will play out. And so 
I would say this is probably the most comfortable of the three for Luther. Mike, you can disagree if you want to. No, and I think uh, just that they're going to be talking Augustinian things, right? Uh, so th- there's familiar ground there, right? I mean, he doesn't, not that he's going to in a disputation like this, but explain things. I mean, I think there's some things left unsaid, and that's important for us to understand um, if we're going to do a real thorough study of Heidelberg, we probably need to have a little bit, at least a little bit, of understanding of Augustinian language, theology. I don't know how you want to put it, but uh, you got to know about Pelagian. You got Pelagius. You got to know about original sin. You got to know about these things. And and his audience should have and probably did uh, know those things. So yeah, I think. I think by far the most comfortable of these because, um, you know, this is an inside baseball kind of thing too. You know, this is the, the stakes are high, but they're not high in the sense that he's getting, he's not, he's not making this case before, um, the emperor or the Pope or, uh, John Eck even, right? I mean, this is, this is, you're right. I think his home turf. Yeah, and he's, uh, he's going to be in Duke George's, who's a great enemy's territory for the Leipzig debate. Um, really, he has a step in for Karlstadt, so it's not even his baby from the beginning. <clears throat> um, but we took the, the three fora idea is from Heinz Schilling's um, Martin Luther, Rebel in an Age of Upheaval. Uh, Schilling is a German historian. And, uh, and I think um, Scott Hendricks, who is someone else whose biography we've used a lot, I would say my big go-to biographies in this might have been the the Schilling biography, uh, Lindell Roper, Martin Luther, Renegade and Prophet, and then um, the Hendricks book, what is that, Visionary Luther Visionary Reformer that we use in the Luther class. Um, Brand Luther, obviously, I know Mike has been using Kittleson. I, I try, as you were, we talked about this, you were going to take those ones, and I said, you know what, give me Roland Baton and, and Kittleson, Kittleson the just traditional some of the traditional kinda. ones, yeah. And so... Um, Scott Hendricks has a nice summary of what he views these uh, theses as largely being about, and he says, the issue was, how did sinful human beings become lovable enough in the eyes of God to receive grace and forgiveness? And here you can see, um, this is a question that's not a specifically Lutheran question, in that it it doesn't mean you have to come up with a Lutheran answer. Um, Medieval theology had its own answers of, how does um, someone get to the place where they can become lovable in the eyes of God in order to receive <clears throat> grace and forgiveness? Um, but what Luther's going to do is to reorient things in, I would say, a very biblical, a very Pauline way that will be um, eye-opening for a lot of people. And this, this disputation does become very uh, influential, and partly because um, one of the men there, and he was not an uh, uh, Augustinian, I don't think. I think he was a Dominican um, when Mike talks next, I'll look it up, but Martin Bootser, who will become a very important reformer in Strasbourg, and he tries to really walk a middle path between um, Luther and some of the other reformers, especially the Swiss reformers. But Strasbourg and um, southwest Germany kind of has its own situation to deal with. It's much more closer to, um, it's much closer to imperial influence. Um, when the interims happen later, it's um, right away subject to the interims and some of the persecution that comes from it. But Bootser, interestingly, also will end up in England and will be uh, pretty influential there. Um, my dissertation looks a lot at um, Germany in comparison with England at this time, and Bootser will kind of be in a little bit of the theological circle that's shaping things there. 
So he will have a broad influence. Um, and uh, he, you know, I can't remember the exact boots or quote on this, but basically says my eyes were open. You know, this was such a wonderful, beautiful experience. And so this this had influence beyond just uh, the moment in which it's given. And I'm plugging a lot of books today. If I can plug one of my own, and then, Mike, you can uh, say bad things about it if you want. But um, my first book with 1517, An Uncompromising Gospel, Lutheranism's First Identity Crisis and Lessons for Today, uh, I, I argue in the first half of that book that the two most important works for understanding the conflicts that broke out after Luther's death, and I would say probably two of the most important works just to understand Luther's theology, um, but obviously there's other works I would go to first if you're learning Lutheranism. Go to the catechisms, right? That's where you got to begin. <clears throat> um, and then probably the Augsburg Confession. But for understanding the controversies that broke out later, I really think, um, and I believe I mentioned in there too, you could throw in the disputation against scholastic theology as well, and I use that when I present on this book. Um, but the Heidelberg Disputation and Bondage of the Will are just extremely important, and it's because they hit on the themes that later there will be disagreement about. Um, are good works necessary for salvation? Is the, is, is the will free at all, right? Does it play any role in salvation? And as Melanchthon will tinker with his Lotzi later, he's going to um, kind of add a third cause to our salvation that kind of lets the will get its nose in the door. Um, how dead are we in original sin? Um, how deep a corruption is it? Um, is, how forensic is justification? That is, is, is justification primarily God's external declaration upon us, or is it something, as Oziander will say, that God works in us? Is it infused, which um, uh, Flacius will later see as basically a return to the Roman Catholic position? Um, so I would say it's extremely important for the themes it introduces. Is Luther entirely there on everything in this? No. Um, one thing um, I think that we'll see Luther develop more. as he's, he's good on law and gospel here, but he will develop more the role of law, law and gospel specifically with proclamation, with preaching, with absolution as time goes on. Um, but law and gospel, the role of law and gospel will begin to come through pretty clearly here, and some of his most powerful and enduring statements will be made here. Um, original sin, and he might not say original sin a bunch of times, but really... Anytime you hear him say anything about free will, he's talking about original sin. I, I hope that listeners are starting it's to get kind the, of an Augustinian thing. They would have understood that. Yeah, yeah, and I hope listeners are starting to realize you can't discuss the will without discussing original sin. Those two just have to go together. Um, the love of God, and uh, and so if I can just briefly, Mike, read the first and the last um, thesis in this set, well, and, let, let, and then let you uh, jump in however you want. But um, this is a uh, one last book plug would be by 1517, so the conference we recorded at last. Um, everyone who attended got a free copy of this. And Caleb Keith did a really good job with a new translation of the Heidelberg Disputation. I really like what he did with where mortal sin pops up. A lot of people don't get that concept today. And he really translated really well with those. Um, but uh, the theses, there's different authors who had explanations of the various theses. Some of the names you will be familiar with. Obviously, we mentioned Caleb Keith, um, Dan Van Voorhis of um, Virtue in the Wasteland, which is no longer around, but he has a, a great course out now through 1517 Academy. Um, we're going to pause. That's the fire alarm. We'll be back in a moment. 
And that was the fire alarm, and I'm going to pick up where we left off because then I don't even have to edit it later. Um, but I had mentioned a couple people you might know, uh, Caleb Keith, Dan Van Voorhis, um, Broer Erickson, who has been on the show four times, I believe, um, and a number of others. If you listen to Thinking Fellows, Scott Keith, Rod Rosenblatt, and then um, the 28th and the final, or, or thesis 27 and 28, so the final two of the theological theses um, is by this guy, uh, questionable reputation, uh, I've heard possibly an antinomian, uh, Wade Johnston. But Mike, before and I read the... Ed- editor, we should give props to the... Um, who, she's in, she does some design work, I thought, or her husband does some design work. Um, she well, works Kelsey Klimbara yeah, with Caleb some, Keith right? edits this. Yeah, and uh, Kelsey also, all the blog posts... Um, does a fantastic job making them coherent. So I'll send a blog post to 1517, and then Kelsey actually makes it make sense. Um, so Kelsey and Caleb edited that, and um, and then we should probably give props to uh, a friend of both of ours, Mike. Uh, Steve Burns is the one who makes all of these 1517 books happen, now with Sam Lianza as well, and uh, they just do a phenomenal job. So a little book on the Heidelberg Disputation, I have my free copy, so I don't even know how much it costs, but a nice devotional read. Um, they're, they're definitely devotional commentaries on the theses, but for those interested. Now, Mike, uh, during the fire break, um, told me before I read the first and 28th theological thesis, he wants to talk a little bit about the thesis themselves, so go ahead, Mike. Sure, and maybe just one comment on Martin Bucer. You were right. This is a young man coming, and he's wild by Martin Luther. I even think he says, oh, you know, he was so eloquent and everybody, you know, and so calm and all this kind of stuff, like not the attributes you normally give to Martin Luther. And I, I think back to that original idea that he felt at home here. And he was a here. Dominican, I just looked it up. He, he was at home there um, in Heidelberg. And so if, if I could go back and say, oh, what are a couple of events where I could be a fly on the wall? You know, you'd like to be at Firms. You'd like to be, oh, I'd like to be at Heidelberg too. I, this and And the reason I bring this up is because these are very, on one side, very hard, deep, precise theses. However, they are a window into, for the laity, into how Luther's thinking, and they shouldn't be considered beyond somebody. It's one of those things where it's like reading John's gospel. You're like, that's really simple. And then you're like, no, it's not. It's really complicated. Um, the kindergartner and the philosopher can both read, understand, and be wowed by John's gospel. And I think in a similar way in Heidelberg too. And so your book, the, the book that you uh, you gave, The Theology of the Cross from 1517, um, is really good. And even if you just get a ha- your hands on the Heidelberg theses, there's only 40, 40 sentences um, and then there's a couple paragraphs on each one that Luther um, uh, gives to explain his theses called proofs. And then um, the book that you mentioned from 1517 also then gives a little bit of a, a devotional in modern day, in day language. So there's 40 uh, theses. The first 28 are called the theological theses. The last 12 or 13 are going to be uh, what they call philosophical theses. They have their merit too, uh, but most of the good stuff is in those first 28. For and, our purposes. Yeah, stuff, for our yeah. purposes. And so, uh, yeah, 1 and 28 are good uh, to start with. Um, some of my favorites, though, uh, 18, 19, 20, 21, uh, 22, and then... Um, there are also ones in the single digits. I can't remember their names right now, but when I was teaching those, I spent a lot of time on those as well. 14, 
free we'll we'll tackle free yeah, and maybe too. why don't so i why give don't one you, and 28 and then we can go through and kind of hit on some of our favorites um i will say this is something that both bike and i use in our luther course that we teach here at the college so theology 461 our courses are being renumbered now so that number won't matter pretty soon i think that one stays actually. oh it did okay yep. so the luther course and that rotates between mike and i um but i also use this in my honors course uh renaissance and reformation and I find it to be really good for provoking student conversation because, A, it makes them learn some terms, uh, so it's helpful for that. But, B, um, to have them have to wrestle, not looking at the explanations yet, but just to wrestle with the theses themselves. We'll, we'll, we'll bring it up. I'll bring it up and actually have them read just the theses, not the proofs, Right. in apologetics, too, okay. because there, there's an epistemology epistemological thing going on there um and the problem and epistemological of evil. just meaning how we know things. how we know things so you, we have to fight through all that and then finally you get luther saying uh you think what's good but it's actually evil and evil is good and, and to work through that as you move from okay i'm thinking about talking to a skeptic right now to then talking about somebody who is struggling with something. So the problem of evil and the problem of suffering and pain all comes together here. And so I think it's worthwhile. We don't spend a whole lot of time in it. But to your point, uh, our students get quite a bit of this um, in, in different places. And I think, Mike, we have three different translations of the theses in front of us right now between <laughs> us. So if, if you're looking at these at home and maybe you've got the Luther's Works volume or the Lull, um the Russell and Lull, uh, Martin Luther's, what's the title of it? You've got it there, Mike. Uh, Martin Luther's Basic Theological Writings. Maybe, then, maybe you have uh, Fer, uh, Gerhard Ferdi's book. I don't know being if, a theologian, yeah, if he translated those. Which I also would it. highly recommend. And then uh, um, Caleb Keith's translation. So we're going to be bouncing between them perhaps as we get excited and pick one from the various. I, I have one, two, three, four, five. I have five books in front of <laughs> me right now. Um, thank God for this new studio and, this, and the, the big table arrangement we have here we still no tablecloth by the way for those who are wondering but um for i, w I just want to give the bookends of the theological theses one in 28 to give you a sense and then i think mike maybe if we can proceed through and we pick out some of our favorites and then we talk a little bit about them maybe we can bounce back and forth between us and kind of pick that way i would say we can try to proceed in order but i don't know if that will be possible but thesis one, and now I am just what I have in front of me is the um, the Lull Russell anthology. Um, so one as it is, and there is the law of God, the most salutary doctrine of life, cannot advance persons on their way to righteousness, but rather hinders them. And I think this is an important think, point to keep in mind. And I thought um, Stephen Paulson, who uh, presented at the last fifteen seventeen conference on this, was also on my. Uh, doctoral committee for my dissertation, so he was part of my uh, defense I had to make, um, and I very much appreciate him doing so. Um, Paulson made a good point on this, too. What Luther is saying is the law is the best we have here. The law is good, right? The law is the very best thing we have here, um, but because of us, it's limited. So the law, the most salutary doctrine of life, this is the, outside of the gospel, this is the best thing we have and yet, it still cannot advance us on our path to righteousness, but hinders us. And why? We'll get into that in some of the other theses, but just the quick answer will be because as fallen sinners, we're unable to perfectly keep it. So the problem is not with the law. Um, in no way is Luther against the law. He wants us to recognize, though, what the law can and can't do with a fallen sinner. Um, and then 28, which is... Uh, um, one of my favorite things that Luther ever wrote, one of my favorite theses, and uh, 
Michael, maybe Michael have more reason to make fun of me if this makes its way on my arm at some point. Uh, but uh, you got a tattoo. We're all impressed, Wade. We get it. Well, I know you like to make fun of me for it. So, uh, but uh, this one's not made it there yet. But uh, Heidelberg thesis, our disputation thesis 28, and this is just beautiful to me. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. And that right there, I think, is just the most wonderful statement. And then he explains, human love comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. And I would say, if you want to read a nice explanation of this thesis that in no way is intended to be an explanation of this thesis, um, it would be The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. And we did an episode on that as well, I believe. I don't know the episode number, but just that first sentence, I want to read again. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. And then, Mike, I'll let you comment whatever you want, and you can have first pick now of any that you want to pick out. Sure. Let's go back to the, the uh, f- first one there, too, when he sets the stage that the law is the best we have. And, and I keep thinking over and over again when we think about law or reason, all these things that um, we Lutherans go, bad, 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 bad. We go, hold on now. It's not, it's not a God problem. It's a us problem, right? I mean, are we going to go up to God and say, you know, your law is stupid? Are we going to go up to God and say you're irrational? No, it's we are the ones who are irrational. We are the ones who make the law something that it's that it's not. It's an us problem. And, and, so, and so we hit on that in the last session too, with um, you know, reason or Luther can say in a place, in one place, reason is a whore, but he can also say reason is a handmaid of theology, and say famously at Worms, unless I'm proved wrong mm-hmm. by Scripture or sound reason. So reason is like the law here. Um, reason probably can't be praised highly enough, except that there are certain places um, in which we reason is not to be admitted um, because it it can no longer do what it maybe otherwise could do when it's dealing with fallen sinners and when fallen sinners are making use of reason. Yep, and so that's going to be a theme, of course, through all these uh, theological theses. And we get right into uh, pretty much through the single digits here. He's talking about mortal and venial sins then. And so you, you have this idea of law gospel coming together. You have the idea, um, do I have um, free will or not? You have the idea, is, is can, I, can I be reasonable here or not? Is my human reason enough to understand the things of God and really even the things of me, the things of, of, of man or not? And it comes in this discussion between mortal and venial sins, and, and this is, deserves a, more, a better explanation than I'm going to give it to it, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Wade, but you know, mortal sin is something that is, it damns you, right? right? And a venial sin is something that can be forgiven or is forgiven. Right. Yeah, growing up in Roman Catholicism, you know, it was made very clear to us, if you had committed a mortal sin, you needed to get to confession, right? If you died in mortal sin, your soul was in very serious peril, and mortal sin becomes a classification of sin. Certain sins are mortal sins. So um, murder, for instance. But think of the seven deadly sins as maybe an easy way to think of this. Um, these are sins that, uh, that damn. Venial, maybe the easiest way to think of it would be, and I'm really simplifying, would be a sin of weakness, right? I didn't really want to do that, or I didn't even know that was a sin. You still want to confess them, but mortal sin is extremely pressing, And what Luther's going to do is turn that on his head Mm -hmm. and say, really, every sin is a mortal sin when it's the product of unfaith or Mm -hmm. of unbelief. Um, We take an entirely too light 
view of sin when we think, oh, there's certain real big ones to stay away from, and then the the rest, oh, they're, you know, it's it's not a, that big a deal. Yeah, and human reason tells us, and it's okay in a lot of cases for us to do this, that the person who does something very, very awful is is that's worse than the somebody who, you know, had an, had an extra cookie when they know that that's going to be bad for the health. Um, what Luther does here is say all of the the life of a human being should be thought of in that dangerous I'm in mortal sin thing, right? You don't you don't wait to say, oh, I killed somebody. Now I really, really am in trouble. You're supposed to say, I'm always really, really, really in trouble. And so uh, thesis one, the law of God is the most salutary doctrine of life we hit on. And then number two, much less can human works, which are done over and over again, with the aid of natural precepts, so to speak, lead to that end. And here's where he starts this uh, um, discussion on mortal sins. Number three, although the works of man always seem attractive and good, they are nevertheless likely to be mortal sins. So first of all, those good deeds, you are still in a sense of mortal danger. Right. And Caleb, what I like what Caleb does with that is he translates that as uh, deadly sins. Yeah. And then... To take it a next step further, and he's going to do that, play that out in, in later theses, is to say, if you think that your good deeds, these shiny things that look so good, if they are done not with the fear of punishment and outside of faith that my righteousness comes from Christ and not me, that very thing that looks good and wonderful is actually the worst thing in the world. And so it looks good actually as evil because it works against faith. It works against your uh, only hope of righteousness. And you've put yourself back into the righteousness by law. And that's the worst possible thing. And so he flips it all upside down. What looks good actually is evil. And, and then later when we talk about suffering, it'll be the exact opposite. What you think is evil will actually be good. And, and that plays into, too, when Paul, for instance, calls himself the chief of sinners, he's not saying, I'm worse than Hitler um, or Stalin or pick your big sinner. Um, and who and cares? It's not the point, right? Right. And when I say, when I sing chief of sinners, though I be, um, the reason I'm chief of sinners is that my sins are chief and that my sins are the sins that will take me to hell. Um, we like to put our sins like somehow we view like uh, Lady Justice holding her scales. And we, we like to think that Lady Justice is going to balance the good against the bad. And if there's more good, then we're good. No, Lady Justice is measuring out what's the appropriate punishment for the evil that has been done. And the appropriate punishment for any evil that has been done on our part, what does Paul tell the Romans? The wages of sin is death. And so Luther can say in that connection, in the sight of God, sins are truly venial when they are fear feared by people to be mortal. In other words, when I recognize that my sin, even though I might not be a murderer, even though I might not be as bad as my neighbor in my eyes, that th my sins still are what will damn me. Yeah, so, so then through the eyes of man, Mother Teresa, who does good deeds, but if, I can't look into her heart, but if trust those deeds for her salvation, that is heinous, evil, insulting to God, the worst possible thing. And Mike's not saying she did that. He's saying yeah. if, if she yes. did. And then the worst person ever who is, just think of the most heinous sin, but does that uh, knowing that they're nothing, they're in mortal danger, but have the forgiveness of Christ, those true are the venial sins, right? And so 
what I see and what is reality um, has to be seen then through what he's going to say, the lens of the cross, or I'm putting words in his mouth here, but you have to see it through the cross. You have to see it through this system, a system of righteousness by, by faith rather than a righteousness by law. And this opens up then the judging passages in the New Testament because it explains what Jesus means there is that it's not that we ought never judge. We judge all the time, um, but rather we ought not judge with a different measure than we use for ourselves. And so when I'm warning my neighbor who's in sin, um, which I ought to do in Christian love, I am not viewing their sin as worse than mine. I am recognizing the gift of... Re- and we got to pause again for fire alarm. So to pick up again after that fire alarm, uh, what he's saying is that when we judge the other sins, um, we ought to recognize their sins aren't worth more points than mine. Um, our concern for them is their sins might take them for hell, just as, to hell, just as our concerns for us is our sins um, could take us to hell. And so it's not, well, they committed a mortal and I only commit venial, um, but rather it's in love that we're motivated to address their sin, not in judgment as if theirs were worse. Um, so, Mike, you had uh, there, you picked uh, Thesis 4. Well, just kind of the, the whole group, the first grouping there of mortal and venial sins. And uh, before we get to free will is kind of what I was, was picking there. But if you want to pick up on any one of those. Well, now you, pro- you want to guess where I'm going to go to? Free will. Yep. I'm going to go to Thesis uh, 13. And this is, interestingly enough, too, um, kind of where Melanchthon picks up in his 1521 Lodzi, which, if I'm going to recommend another book, uh, translated by Christian Preuss, uh, put out by Concordia Publishing House, uh, very worthwhile, too. Um, but Le- uh, Luther says in Thesis 13, where we kind of have this shift from mortal venial, as Mike mentioned, all, a bunch of these early theses could be lumped together, 13 will be a shift to free will, and Luther will say, uh, free will after the fall exists in name only. And this will be a big reorientation as well. Um, and here, um, bondage of the will is extremely helpful because he will explain there he's talking about free will as it pertains to stuff above us. So free will below us is I do have a free will if I have a Big Mac or a Whopper or a Big Mac and a Whopper. If I buy a Ford, You don't have free will to get a salad, though. I mean, your only choice right, is really... Well, what would be the point? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, if I get a Ford or a Chevy, because, of course, I'm, I'm going to buy... But you don't have free three. choice to get a Nissan. As a Detroiter, no, I don't think I do. Um, I can choose to get an, an iPhone or an, a Samsung, an Android. Um, things above, we're talking free will as it exists to salvation. I cannot will my way to salvation. And this is an extremely important thesis... Because when Christianity gets things wrong, it oftentimes gets it wrong precisely at this point, that to some extent I can will my will to salvation. And so in a lot of ways, American evangelicalism is just the flip side of medieval Catholicism. Um, What is a lot of the pre—and we have many American evangelical friends, dear friends, and I'm not saying they won't be in heaven because, right, they believe Christ is their Savior too. But this does get problematic in their theology is that oftentimes what will be set before people— in a manner that does not always make clear if we're talking about what are some principles for better serving my neighbor, vocational, versus um, salutary or surve- salvation thesis of um, here's some ways to will your, yourself toward salvation. And the big one would be um, our friends in American Christianity who would talk about making a decision for Christ, where where are decisions rooted, but in your will. And so Thesis 28 is going to really hammer this home, building on Thesis 13, 
of the will that matters in our salvation is God's will, and that will, and this gets to reason versus the scriptures too, that will is revealed only in the cross. And this is how we get to a theology of the cross, where in essence, when we look at the crucifix, we see God choosing us, God willing us to salvation, not us willing ourselves, um, but Jesus saying, uh, it is finished, and Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, anything you want on that, Mike, or you can pick another thesis? Um, I'm going to give us a—we're going to go a little longer than normal on this one because I don't want to give Heidelberg Disputation short shrift, but we'll try not to go too long. I'm sure someday down the road we'll come back to this and, and really go through it. I mean, it could be a whole wing in it session on its own, of course. Uh, so Really an uh, episode probably, too. Right. Um I wanted to maybe maybe jump not jump ahead just to a thesis yet, but bring this up right now. Um, very quickly, we're going to see that with the theology of the cross, there's two stories. There's the story of the cross's story of glory, and the story of glory, you know, it can come in many different forms. A decision theology, it can come into uh, good good works. It can come into you know, honestly, sometimes I think a lot of these programs in the church really are a story of glory, right? Um, we're trying to feel good about ourselves doing these things instead of thinking in more vocational terms. I'm spiritual, I'm this, I'm whatever. Um, and theology of glory, if you've ever been to a church council meeting or a voters meeting, uh, we can see how quickly that can, can prop up. If we can only do, if we only had money, if we only had better leadership, if we only had better worship, if we only had better whatever, those New are carpeting. all... Those are all glory stories. And none of, it's not bad to have more no. money or to have more people or to have new carpeting, but when that becomes the goal. Right, or that that is how I judge things. I'm seen through the lens of glory versus through the lens of the cross and suffering. And let me just kind of, I'm going out of order here, but let me just kind of jump to how this plays out pastorally too. Um, you may say something like this. If the goal is faith and specifically faith in Christ at the cross, dying for you. And the opposite of faith in Christ is faith in anything else, which usually is faith in myself, in the doctors, the government, whatever, but it's usually faith in man, usually myself. Then there seems to be good cause for God to then beat the false faith out of me before he... At, and, and partly to turn me to true faith in Christ. And so that's where we can start seeing, <clears throat> we already said what looks like good, a good work, if it's done not with not with the eye of, to the cross, but through the lens of glory, I'm being good, look at me, or um, this is my piety or whatever, that what looks like good is actually pure evil. The opposite, what may be actually pure evil, like the cross, is actually our ultimate and eternal good. And so for the person suffering to say, you know what, you're probably in a good place right here because you're not trusting in yourself right now. And so what seems evil actually is good. And we go right to Job to think about uh, how that gets played out. And so there's a, there's a pastoral aspect to here. I don't want to make it all about suffering because that's not what it's about. The, the We're not looking here. for suffering. Yeah, but, it, and then, but it's suffering may come up. It's like vocation. You don't always go looking for a vocation. Vocation finds you. The same can be true of suffering. If you choose a cross, then it's not a cross. It's a negative It's a negative theology of glory. Look at me, I suffer. That's what we're saying. And, and I don't want to make these 40 theses about past, only pastoral care to the suffering because there's a lot more going on here. It's very deeply theological. But 
but it really helped me as a pastor and not just to say to the person who is suffering, you know, you're right where you need to be. Although I said that sometimes, um, but lay it out there before the people suffer. Like just don't be surprised if something comes your way here and um, it's going to hurt and you're going to doubt and all those things. But let's, let's have a basis here where you can say, okay, I was taught that what seems like evil actually is good. And it's more than just throwing out Romans eight out there, but really explaining a little bit like, Hey, this, this is about faith, faith in you or faith in God. He may be beating the, he may be beating the false faith out of you, or he may be putting a roadblock in front of you so that you don't go down that road in the first place of trusting yourself. And maybe just a couple of things through there. And um, this reminds me, Mike, we should really have an episode, um, a big picture episode on Romans. And then I think a, a winging it series on Romans would be great at some point too. But we love to go to Romans 8 and suffering. And Romans 8 isn't bad at all. Romans 8 is, is good. It's one of my favorite um, chapters of scripture. But we have to remember how Paul builds up that argument. And I'd say you really have to, if you want to read Romans 8, what I would ask that you do is read Romans 5, 6, and 7 first. Um, and Romans 5 is going to get at how the Christian life can be a struggle, and, and perseverance will come through this, um, the relationship between Adam and Moses. We had a good question in, um, in our live episode, which was two episodes ago, about, well, what about someone who's constantly struggling? And right, that's a sign of faith. That's the cross at work. Um, that's not a sign that we have no faith. Um, But then you get to Romans 6, which is baptism, Romans 7, which is the symbol that we're both sinner saints, um, and we'll struggle to do the right thing, and then you get to Romans 8. And then the second with that, um, we mentioned earlier uh, Gerhard Fierde on on being a theologian of the cross, and we're not going to get into a bunch of Fierde. Um, You throw that name out, and you have a a ton of people with a ton of different opinions. and Blood, Blood pressure goes up. Yeah, I don't know what it is with authors whose name begins with the letter F, but the same as I think could be said of Ferdy that is said of Foucault, that people love to quote him but seldom read him. And uh, I find Ferdy in many places to be very helpful. And I think the book on being a theologian of the cross, I'd really challenge someone to find much problematic about Ferdy in that book. But he has a very important insight in there that I think gets at um, some of what you were saying, Mike. He writes, religious people in particular seem to have difficulty being theologians of the cross That is because the theology of the cross is quite devastating for our usual religious aspirations under the wisdom of the law. And what he's getting at there is that oftentimes, and I have a Logia article on this, and that's going to make its way into my new book coming out from 1517, probably this year, um, Clothed and in Our Right Minds. But the idea that um, oftentimes people turn to religion for the same reasons they turn to drugs or to Oprah, um, or to the self-help uh, section of Barnes & Noble if they still go to bookstores. And that is to fix things now, right, to have noticeable progress. Um, and, uh, and so the theology of the cross can be quite devastating to what we are looking for in religion. And it reminds us, too, that Christianity, uh, you know, strictly speaking, is not religion in the same sense of every other religion in the world. Um, Christianity turns things on its head. And so that the problem of the will gets to that, but also as you've been unpacking, Micah, our view of the law and what we can do by it, um, and uh, our awareness of our own sin, um, and that the suffering that life in a fallen world can bring with it, um, and that God can also 
work through that. Uh, it, especially in ethics, when I talk to students about suffering, it's very hard for even my, my very Christian students to wrestle with, with why would God want us to suffer? Um, I struggle with that. I'm guessing most of our listeners do. But at the end of the day, the primary symbol of Christianity is one of suffering, and this is why Luther calls it a theology of the cross, where through the crucifix, through suffering, as you noted, Mike, um, God works our very salvation. Yeah, and then you can think of 16, 17, and 18, put that together. There's the person who believes that he can obtain grace by doing what is in him, and that's a very medieval Catholic thought, you know, do what is in you, adds sin to sin, so you become doubly guilty. And then 17, he almost seems to seems to give us a block off an argument that I hear all the time. Isn't this so negative, right? Well, no, it's actually purely positive. It's the best It's actually optimism. a meaningful message for the yep. suffering rather than a platitude. Yep. Nor does speaking in this matter give cause for despair, but for arousing the desire to humble oneself and seek the grace of Christ. And then, 18, it is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability. You have to do that. And I, I liked uh, this is from uh, John Douglas Hall, I think is the right name. He's now passed. He was a, um, he was a mainline Protestant in Canada. I think he's the one who said, you know, it, you get permission to go through the darkness, the theology of the cross. And so it, it's, 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 it's pure optimism. And you can finally realize what St. Paul is saying when he repeats over and over again, a few times, right? Rejoice in your suffering, yep. right? Like, how do you do that? He's not saying, oh, look at me, I suffered, and, and uh, you know, happy, clappy, clappy. And Philippians is great for this, too. Yeah, Philippians, and then and in Romans 5. Uh, just, just that I have permission to enter the darkness knowing that I have already gone through the cross with Christ in baptism. I've, I've come out the other side of the resurrection. He's got this covered, and it's for my good, even if I can't explain it, even if I don't know. Uh, that's true peace, and it's a true relying in a, in a, in a trustful way of God. And, and Mike, I, I don't want to um, make your head big here, but I know you're good on this, and a, a lot of the presentations you do when you're out um, traveling, is that what this does is it, it sees meaning in suffering, but while avoiding theodicy. Right, theodicy becomes a theology of glory too, to where now we're going to describe, we're going to come up with some tale for how we want to keep God good and loving, right? So we're going to rationalize things so that God comes out unstained in all of this. But rather, what this does is to say, God is hidden, but He's there in suffering. The fact that He's hidden means He's present. And there might not be a, a, a nice, clean story we can tell from this. And we can say, here's the five benefits of this. But it does, um, even in the midst of suffering, provide a peace and a hope that transcends all understanding, if that's fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're at our time here. I mean, we well, didn't let's, really... let's give one more. And okay, then we'll can you, are you going to do hiddenness and, and, uh, of God? I'm, that we have not really talked about. Okay, but how maybe about Mike? We'll... I'm going to... Why don't you take two minutes explain the hidden God, and then I want to take two minutes on Thesis 26. Why don't you go to 26? Because we, you did mention the hiddenness of God, and that deserves its own topics anyway. Okay. The key thing to remember with the hiddenness of God, though, is that when God is hidden, He is still there. And okay. we, we have had an episode where we talked about this, and I'll have to try to remember to link it, but he, it's not that God is absent, it's that we don't see Him. All right, I'll lie to say one thing. Okay. It's paradoxical. When he is uh, exposed to us, like I see him in natural law, I see him in nature and stuff like that, 
I still don't really know him because I don't have the spirit. And so in that way, he's actually hidden from me. When he is hidden, clothed in the incarnation, clothed in the words of scripture, clothed in the sacraments, uh, clothed then in suffering, that's where he is very near to me. He's, he's in the mud and the blood and the beer. And so when he is hidden, that's when he is actually revealed to us. And, yeah. and the cross is the he's prime example. He's hidden to be found in the right place. And, and God chooses his image to us. God chooses where we are to find him. It's at word and specifically at the cross. Okay. And then here, Luther's going to talk more in terms of law, grace, and not as much explicitly of law and gospel, but really he'll be expounding on the Heidelberg Disputation throughout his ministry. But just to get at um, law and gospel here, though, although he says law and grace, um, just to give you Thesis 26 and briefly comment and then we'll wrap up. But he says, the law says do this and it is never done. Grace says believe in this and it is already done. And he does in the Heidelberg Disputation earlier get at the fact then that the Christian's righteousness is a passive righteousness. It's a received righteousness. And we're going to get into the two kinds of righteousness in future sessions. Um, There is an active righteousness, right? Even the unbeliever can be a good citizen or a good neighbor. Um, But when it comes to the righteousness that saves, it is received. And so the law says do this and it's never done. And grace, and there we can substitute the gospel, um, says believe this and everything is already done. And so that will be building on in the sessions that come, but I think it's important to note that Luther's very clear on that already here in the Heidelberg Disputation. And this will in many ways become the lens for understanding the bondage of the will for when we get to that. And I'm going to let you have last word on that, Mike, anything you want to bring out, and then I'll let you wrap it up. Yeah, I'm starting to use 26 as, as uh, here's the definition for law and gospel, or at least a supplementary definition for law and gospel. Think about it this way. Uh, the law is the will of God. The gospel is the good news of salvation. But it really hits home when you say the law says do this and it's never done. And the gospel or grace says believe this and it's already done for you. So we're going to leave Heidelberg. We're going to cross Germany and we're going to meet each other again at Worms at the Imperial Diet. But not at the Diet itself. Um, in a private meeting with Cardinal Cayetan. So come back next time. We'll see you in Augsburg. Another round, another round, oh, one more round, won't you head me down?